this service will continue throughout the week. It doesn't actually come to a, an end today. It will, it will lead us more and more towards the cross and then through the cross to the Easter resurrection. And I really want to encourage you not to skip over the other events of this week because Easter means something significantly different to us when we've really sat under that teaching. That's hard to hear, and it's hard at Good Friday to recognize what the cross means. But here's the important thing. Christianity could have chosen, or Jesus could have chosen a number of symbols for Christianity. We could have gold frankincense and myrrh up there. We could have a crown up there. We could have loaves and fishes up there to remind us of the miracles. We could have water up there that he walked on. We could do a number of different things, and yet God chose the cross to be the symbol of Christianity. It's been the symbol for 2,000 years and will continue forever to be the symbol of God's wrath and God's love and good news, actually. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have been referred to as passion narratives with lengthy introductions. Because they're really, if you look at how much time and words and pages are devoted to the passion of Christ, meaning the passion refers to all of the events that we just heard about, the betrayal leading up the upper room, leading up to the cross, his death, and then, of course, the resurrection. Um, like John's gospel, for instance, has 21 chapters, and in chapter 12, Jesus' public ministry of three years comes to a conclusion, and he goes into the upper room preparing himself and his immediate disciples for the cross. The cross was the reason that Jesus came, above all other things. He didn't come primarily to teach. He came to die for our sins. That is why he came. And so we see a number, number of interesting things in Jesus' own ministry, where he is, um, he is eager to get on with his work. In Luke's gospel, he says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. That's in Luke chapter 12 of 24 chapters. And so there's this anticipation. In John's gospel, a number of different times, Jesus refers to his hour. You know, my hour has not yet come, he says to his mother at the wedding in Cana of Galilee when she asked him to help with the shortage of wine. My hour has not yet come. In Jesus' mind, the cross was constantly before him. He had come for that. And so uh, in John chapter 12, he comes to the end of his public ministry and he says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He came to die for our sins. And because the cross makes us uncomfortable, we want to skip over it. We want to get to Easter. We want to say, yay, he wins. Hallelujah, he's risen. We want that. We don't like having to go through Good Friday. We don't like coming in, singing Hosanna, blessed, and then all of a sudden, that's the reading. It messes with us. It scandalizes us. It hurts because we know we're at least somewhat responsible. And the more we look at it, we realize we're totally responsible. And it, and it drives us to a place of darkness, really, of drives us to our knees, and we, we, we don't like that. So we want, to, we want to skip over. And I want to encourage you not to skip through Good Friday and show up on Easter Sunday. If you come to Easter Sunday without the cross, um, it's missing the hope piece, right? If Easter Sunday was about celebrating Jesus as the king or Jesus as the one revealed as uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration and glory or something or something about his, his character and his goodness without his work, then 
It's a great celebration of him, but it doesn't give us hope. As the, as the song, the, the common song that we've sung and has been around the church for a long time says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, his righteous blood. My hope is on his blood, and that means the cross. That's the source of our hope because of what he did on the cross. So today I want to get the cross in focus for us. I want us to set our eyes on that just like Jesus did in this week and so that when we get to Easter Sunday, we will be able to say, Alleluia, Christ is risen with that sense of hope and not in darkness and despair. So if you're a Christian and you know the Lord, by focusing on the cross a little bit more and a little bit more throughout your life, your joy in the gospel will increase. It will increase. And I've, throughout the preaching series we just finished in Lent on the values of grace, I've mentioned at least once, maybe twice, Jesus being in the house of Simon the Pharisee. And um, Jesus tells the parable of a debtor that had, uh, a lender that had two debtors, one owed 50 and one 500. And when they couldn't pay, he forgave both. And then he says, Simon, which one will love him more? And he correctly says, the one who's had more forgiven. And then that actually goes on a little further, and there's a woman there that has been um, tending to Jesus, weeping at his feet, touching him, doing things that were culturally very awkward. And, he, and Jesus finally says after that parable, he says, Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see her? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. If the cross is little, in our estimation, we will love God little. As the cross gets bigger, our worship gets bigger. Our love for him increases. That's why we have to keep going through the cross every time we come to the Lord. The cross is so central. Now, if you're spiritually searching, if you're, if you're not sure you want to call yourself a Christian yet, you're sort of trying to figure this, this Jesus thing out, figure out what is the gospel, can I believe this, could this be true, I want also getting the cross in focus, I want you to understand a, a better picture of who God is, because there are a lot of poor caricatures of him out there, false impressions of who God is, misrepresentations of him, and there's a lot of confusion around the cross in particular. So by focusing on the cross, I'm hoping to clean that up and to give you a better picture of who God is. So I want to ask the question, I want to ask two questions. One, who put Jesus on the cross? And two, why? So who put him on the cross? The answer to that question has both a divine and a human edge. From the human side, you could say, well, Judas did. Judas being, of course, incited and tempted by Satan, but Judas let Satan come into his life and chose money over Jesus and betrayed Jesus. But it wasn't just him, it was also the religious leaders who were willing to give the money to him if he would betray Jesus. So the religious leaders did it. But the religious leaders didn't have the authority to crucify someone, so they had to appeal to their Roman oversight. So then they go to Pontius Pilate. And so Pilate did it. But Pilate didn't really do it because he declared that Jesus was innocent, and he tried several ways to get out of it. He tried sending him up to Herod's district, so maybe he's not in my jurisdiction. He tried uh, giving one of the prisoners away, hoping they would take Jesus instead. They took Barabbas. And finally, he goes, my hands are clean. And he washed his hands in front of them and said, I am not guilty of this man's blood. And the people prophetically, prophetically said, may his blood be on our heads and our children's. May it be so, Lord, from our understanding of what that blood means. But they were saying, we are, in, we are righteous in, in killing him. But they didn't actually do it either. 
they couldn't do it. So then it goes back to Pilate, who then hands him over to Roman soldiers, and then physically it was a, a Gentile Roman soldier that put Jesus on the cross. And I think that's supposed to show us something. We all put him on the cross. Jews and Gentiles, even one of his own that betrayed him, all of us. And I love when Mel Gibson made his first movie, and the second one apparently is out, I haven't seen it yet, but his Passion of the Christ, when they actually show the scene with the hand and the nail and the hammer on Jesus's, on his arm, Mel Gibson himself was filmed. He's in the film. His hand is in there. It was Mel Gibson's actual hand. In an interview afterwards, he said, I did that because I put Jesus on the cross. I'm a sinner. We humans, all of us, we put him on the cross. But see, that's only half of the story. Because there, as you read through the scriptures, there's a divine element to this too. Going back to Isaiah 53, where he's, it's the burning heart of scripture, talking about him being pierced for our transgressions. This was God's plan. This is God's plan for a long time. It was the will of the Father out of love for us. And, and Jesus himself says, I don't, nobody takes my life from me. I give it freely. And so he willingly went. In fact, when Peter pulled out his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane and attacks the, the uh, band that's coming to arrest Jesus, Jesus says, no, no, don't you understand? I could call down angels right now from my Father and, and stop this all. I'm giving my life away. So Jesus put himself on the cross, again, out of love, both love for his Father and obedience but also love for us because we couldn't be saved without it. There's no one who's righteous except him that could do that. So there's two. I did it. My sins put him there and he did it. His love put him there. But why? Now, when you start asking the why question, you get very quickly into some deep theological water. In fact, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, comes down to this conclusion. He says, we are told that the Christ was killed for us and his death has washed out our sins, and that by dying, he disabled death himself. That's the formula. That's Christianity. He also says the central Christian belief is that Christ's death was, has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. Theories as to how it did this are another matter. And then he says, I'm only a layman, and at this point, we're getting into deep water. Because what he's, what he's talking about is theories of the atonement, like, how did it actually work? You know, you and I don't need to know how it worked to actually receive its benefits. So just like digestion, do you understand how your food digests, or your body digests food? I mean, kind of, but not really. But you didn't need to know how when you were a baby and started learning to eat. You just knew, I need food and I'm going to eat. The same is true of the cross, where I don't have to know exactly how it works, to get the full benefits of it. I know this, Jesus died for my sins. I had a sin problem and he has the solution for it. And because of that, I'm forgiven and reconciled to God. That's the, that's the formula as C.S. Lewis calls it. That's the good news. But we don't just leave it there. The Bible does hint at a number of these other how. How does it work? So these would be called the theories of atonement. When, when scholars get together and put together a doctrine, there are multiple theories of atonement. For instance, one is the moral example. Jesus on the cross was a moral example for us. We're supposed to copy what he did and take up our cross daily and be self-sacrificing. But that's certainly not adequate for the whole thing. You know, it's not just an example. He didn't just do that as an example. He actually did something that we couldn't do for ourselves. So an example is not enough. Another one would be that he ransomed us. He paid a ransom and ransomed us back. Now that's a little bit 
unclear too, because it's like, does Satan really have that much power? And, and yet the scriptures talk about him being a ransom and him overcoming death and Satan. So that's one of the theories. Another one is the substitutionary atonement theory. He substituted himself in our place so that our judgment came on him. And so you have scriptures like God made him to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All of these are getting into um, theories of atonement, which the church has been, let's say, at least hesitant to get real specific on because it's not super clear how it works. In fact, even the creed, when you say it, when you look at the historic creeds, they go right from his, his birth uh, and they just say, for us and for our salvation, he came down. It doesn't say why. It says what happened, but it says for us and for our salvation. And it's sort of unclear, like salvation from what and how does his death do that and these kind of questions. But what I'd like to do today, because I think this is important to understand the cross a little better and understand who God is and to make sense of a lot of the New Testament, is I want to look specifically at something the Apostle Paul wrote. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned the Romans Road, which looks at some, some key verses in the book of Romans. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. And then he goes on and he says that, we, that he is both just and the justifier. Those are two sides of the same coin. To understand something about God, we have to understand that he is just. He is truly righteous. In him, there is no unfairness. There is nothing wrong. He is pure, he is holy, he is just, he is righteous, and he's the justifier. So for our sake, he does something on that cross out of love that then can give us the justification that we need and we can't get on our own. So the Apostle Paul, he writes, I'll just, I'm going to just read this to you. This is Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and going on further, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption of that is in Jesus, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. ESV, that's the word they put in there. It's hard to translate that word. It means things like expiation, another hard word, atonement, perfect offering. So now we're getting into the substitution where he, he, he did something to appease a wrath that was upon us. Again, it's like wrath. There's a word we don't, we don't like sin. We don't like wrath. We don't like judgment. These words, which are all through scripture, we just want to skip over them. And when we do it, we miss the majesty of God's love for us. We miss how big the cross is. And therefore, we don't worship like we should. And therefore, we don't walk as disciples like we should. And we misunderstand and misrepresent God. So he goes on and he says, so there's propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Forbearance. He didn't do what we deserved when we deserved it. He's been super patient with us and we take advantage of that. We neglect to recognize what we really deserve. And we want, we want to just say, well, why can't he just, you know, skip over this? You know, just, I forgive you, move on. What's all this cross and all this blood and all this stuff? What's that about? Well, we don't realize what we really deserve until we start to look at that. And then when we see the severity of the solution, we recognize the severity of the problem. So he goes on and he says, his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just and the justifier. Two, one coin, both sides. Or, you know, just could be holy or righteous. Justifier, you could say love. You could say, um, 
our healer, our savior. The, the idea of his wrath, which is part of that just God thing, is that his, it's, we misunderstand wrath because we think it's like getting, flying off the handle and being like in rage and out of control, like the wrath of Mike against you or something, like I'm so upset, right? But God's is a steady disposition against sin. It's not capricious in any way. He doesn't get out of control. He never loses control, but he never accepts sin. He will always be against it for all of eternity. And what is sin, you say? Well, the Bible uses about five different Greek words that are translated as sin. One is to miss the target. One word means to just, here's the, here's the bullseye, and you just miss it. Miss the target. Another one is unrighteousness. Another one is evil. Another one is transgression or a trespasser. And then another one is lawlessness. And this idea of just and justifying comes out of the courtroom metaphor. So it's helpful sometimes to think about metaphors and they, you know, or analogies. And they all, they all fail us on some point, but maybe you've heard this one. There are two kids that grew up in the same town, best friends, played together. As they became teenagers, one went down a path of bad, crime, uh, drugs. Another one went off to college and law school and eventually became a prominent judge. The bad one gets busted big crime, does a huge crime, finds himself in the courtroom of his childhood friend. Because of their different paths, they've been estranged for a long time, but they both remember their friendship. And here he comes into the courtroom hoping for mercy. And what can the, what can the judge do except do justice? He doesn't have the freedom to go, this one's my friend, forget the law. No, he has to uphold the law because he swore to do it. So he hits the gavel, guilty, $100,000 fine or whatever it is. Something, you know, in the, in the analogy, something way too big for this guy to be able to afford. That's the, that's the verdict. But then he takes off his judge's robe, walks down around, and pays the fine for that person out of great personal costs. Let's say he has to refinance his house. He re second mortgage on his house to get his friend off of this, this punishment. That's a close. That's close to it. Now, we're missing a number of things, like the fact that the, the crime was not against the judge. It was against somebody else. So for this to really work, the only one who can forgive is the one who's been sinned against, which tells you something about who's on the cross. That's God on the cross, and our sin is against him. That's why David says, against you, and you only have I sinned. And you say, well, no, you, you committed adultery with Bathsheba, and you murdered her husband, and you put your generals in a bad spot, and you, you, you hurt all kinds of people. But ultimately, it's against God. So ultimately the solution has to be God himself. And the way he gives forgiveness is that way. Because he can't just go, nah, it's all good. I forgive you. Forgive and forget. Because he would be denying himself because he is both just and a justifier. And God will never deny himself. He can't. He's consistent and unchanging. And so when we see people in this life who are consistent and unchanging and have that kind of integrity of character, it always catches our attention. I'm thinking uh, of the play in the movie, A Man for All Seasons, about Sir Thomas More, who was an advisor to King Henry VIII. He was the chancellor for England, and um, he got entangled into a mess as Henry VIII is trying to get a divorce, and he's trying to get the blessing of Rome to do this, and he finally ends up pulling England out of the Catholic Church under Rome's authority, and he establishes himself as the supreme head of the church. Those were the legal words. And he expected all of his lords and his, his, his uh, leaders to sign on to this. And Thomas More would not do it because he's like, you're not the supreme head of the church. Jesus is. And I won't, I won't deny my Lord and swear allegiance to you. He just wouldn't do it. 
and he thought the divorce was bad, and he, a couple other things. And um, so when everybody loved him, his daughter begs for him to just sign the piece of paper, and his friends are like, just sign it, man. And he, and he says, no, no, if I do this, then my life has been compromised. I won't be true to myself. I will have perjured myself. I will have compromised. And, and he doesn't do it, and, and he gets beheaded. With his integrity, though, he'd rather live with his integrity than die as a compromised man. You see, we're used to compromise because we do it all the time. It's part of our sin nature. We say, just sign the piece of paper. You can recant next week. Just do it, right? But, but God's not like that. God is just and the justifier, and he won't betray his character because he's not a sinner like us. And so we look at the cross, and we're taken aback by it because it shows us his wrath as well as his love. And it shows us the great extent that he's willing to go to to be the justifier. It's the only way. I mean, Jesus said, if there's some other way, let this cup of wrath pass from me, but not my will but yours be done. There was no other way. That was the only way for us. Again, there's a mystery here. We will spend the rest of eternity understanding both how it is that the blood of Christ atones for our sin. We will also be spending a long time learning the depth of our sin as well as how much he loves us. And as we go into Holy Week and as we go through these events and recall what Jesus has done, I want you to see that coin, God's wrath on one side, his disposition against sin, which is not changing, and his love on the other side, which is the same coin. You can't have one without the other. And when we see how much, well, the cross shows us really how big our sin problem is, but it shows us how big God's love is. And the more we realize that, the more we worship him. We have much love because we've been forgiven much. This is what the cross is about. It's an amazing gift for us. And what it does for discipleship is it says, I hate sin too. If God whom I love hates sin that much, then why would I tolerate it in my life? It's not going with me into eternity. I'm sure of that because sin cannot stand in the presence of God. Just look what happens when like Isaiah the prophet has an angel or a heavenly vision. I mean, he says, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of an unclean people. Other people fall prostrate on their face. They can't stand. Our sin cannot tolerate the presence of true holiness. So we need the cross. And we recognize my sin is so big, but his love is even bigger. That's what this is about. And may we go into discipleship understanding that. And may we go into worship understanding it as people who are greatly loved. And so then we have been forgiven much, so we love much in return. Let's pray. Lord, we don't like these words, judgment, wrath, sin. We're embarrassed about them. And yet they're all through your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us have the humility necessary this week to look again at the cross, to look at your word and see what it says. May we understand the depths of our depravity and the heights of your love that we might worship you for all eternity. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.